This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. I want to remind you of some news that we broke last week, which is that you can now support the podcast with a YouTube membership. You would go to the YouTube page and you would click on the join button. And this way you can actually support the podcast for under $4 a month. That's the lowest tier. There's a higher level tier. So if you want to support the podcast in that particular way by going through YouTube as opposed to going through PayPal, you now have the opportunity to do so. This week's episode is episode 286 entitled Exploring the Triad in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 through 2. Yes, we're continuing to look throughout all of the triadic passages in the New Testament. That is these passages that talk about God, Jesus and the Spirit together, usually together in the same phrase or in the same sentence or in the same couple of verses. These are the passages that often get pointed to to suggest that the New Testament writers did, in fact, actually believe and teach the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine that says that the one God is actually three distinct persons. Now, we've been systematically going through these triadic passages, starting with Matthew 19.28, and then we've moved through the ones in Paul's letters. We've looked through Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians. We even looked through Ephesians. And last week we looked through Hebrews. And in looking at each of these triadic passages, we don't actually find the evidence for the doctrine of the Trinity as it's described in the 4th and 5th centuries. What we actually find is that there's one God defined as a Father alone, and Jesus the Son is distinct from the one God, and the Spirit is the one God's operational presence and power. What about our passage for this week in the opening two verses of First Peter? Will we get lucky and find evidence for the supposedly biblical triune God in our study of First Peter chapter 1? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at the triad in 1 Peter. So the first two verses sound like this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ, and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. That's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. So there you have it. We have God, Jesus, and the Spirit all put together in the same verse, in 1 Peter 1, verse 2. But there's not actually the evidence required here to give us the understanding that these three actually make up the one God. We actually see is that God 
as the title is only linked with the father. And there's no indication here that these three are distinct persons that make up the only true God. Now, what we can see about God is that God is defined as the Father. But there is no God the Son in this particular passage. This actually gives the suggestion that the Father alone is God. It doesn't say God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. It's only God the Father. We can also see that the Father had a plan. He had his purposes and his foreknowledge. And this foreknowledge is going to be very important to keep in mind when we look at a later passage. So keep that in mind. We can also see that God has chosen these believers, which means that he has elected them through his plans and purposes. But the election, of course, is that they may be set apart and sanctified in order that they would obey Jesus. So they still have a responsibility of obedience. That's enough about God. What does the passage tell us about Christ? Well, Christ is the one who made Peter an apostle. This much, pretty much could be easily surmised by reading the gospel accounts, but the letter opens up by making this particular point. We also see that Christ is the object of the obedience of these particular believers. Christ is the one who actually died because his blood covers these particular believers. But there's no indication here with the blood of Jesus that covers the believers that his death is only partial or that it only consists of one of supposedly two natures dying. The indication here seems to be that Jesus completely died as a human being and his human blood covered the believers. What about the Spirit? Well, the Spirit is God sanctifying his believers, meaning that the Spirit makes them holy and acceptable. Now, this sanctifying act of the Spirit is to lead to the obedience of Jesus. We can all see that the Spirit functions in a mediating role between the Father's act of choosing believers because the Father chose them by the Spirit's sanctifying work. So the Spirit has a mediating role in the acts of God. But there's no indication here that the Spirit is a conscious person alongside the Father. So there's not enough evidence here to even suggest that there's an implicit triune God or proto-Trinitarian theology. But what other clues about the Father, Son, and Spirit might we gather from exploring 1 Peter as a whole, thereby allowing us to place these opening two verses in their overall context? That'll lead us to our second point. Point number two, what 1 Peter teaches about God. God, of course, is mentioned quite frequently in 1 Peter. So in verse 3 of chapter 1, we can see the blessing of the epistle. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we have another passage that we've seen many, many times. We can see that Jesus has a God. 
And that God is the God of Jesus, and it's also the Father. Jesus is a Father. Jesus is a God. That God just is the Father. The Father just is God, and Jesus has a God. This, of course, places the risen and exalted Jesus, the one who is our Lord Jesus Christ, in a subordinate position under God, because he has a God above him. This not only distinguishes Jesus from God, but of course it indicates that God is the Father alone. That much is absolutely clear and self-evident from this passage. And it really shouldn't be controversial at all. Moving along, still in chapter 1, in verse 21, God is described as the one who raised him from the dead, namely the one who raised Jesus from the dead. So God raised someone distinguished from him from the dead. This, of course, indicates that God is distinct from Jesus, the one who was raised from the dead. And, of course, God is the one who had the power to bring someone back to life. In chapter 2, verse 5, we read that you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. So we can see that sacrificial language continues to be used for Christians, not in actual sacrifices of animals upon the altar in Jerusalem. These believers don't live out there. They are offering spiritual sacrifices, but God is, of course, the object of these sacrifices. Notice that the Jesus who is distinct from God is not the object of the sacrifices. Christians did not offer sacrifices, real or spiritual, to Jesus. They only offered them to God, and that's a very important point. So God is the object of the offering of spiritual sacrifices as one who is distinct from Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, verse 19, we read, Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. That's chapter 4, verse 19. So the implication here is that it is God, since they are suffering according to his will, this God is the faithful creator. And the creator here is a singular person. It's the faithful creator. It's not creators, as if there are two or three persons. It's not as if the father is one creator and he created through the son. Now we have two creators. Or the father creating through the spirit, as if there are two. Or some sort of combination of the three. There is one creator. This creator is God. We've already learned that this God is the Father and the Father of Jesus. So the definition here of the Creator is a Unitarian definition of the one God. Again, this should not be controversial. It's quite clear and plain in the Greek text. In chapter 5, verse 10, we learn one more important part about the true God. This says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself 
perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's chapter 5, verse 10. What's important about this passage? We can see that the God of all grace is described as a single person. Did you catch the pronoun there? The God of all grace will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This God is described with that singular pronoun, himself. Not God themselves, as if God is two or three persons. This is God himself. God is only one person, and it's unambiguously described here in the Greek text with the singular pronoun. So what we can see there is that God is the Father alone. God is not more than one person. God continues to be Unitarian, according to 1 Peter. That's enough about God. What about the Son? This moves us to our third point, point number three, what 1 Peter teaches about the Son. Chapter 1, verse 20 is arguably the most important verse in 1 Peter about Jesus. It says that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Chapter 1, verse 20. Here we can see that Jesus was in the foreknowledge of God. He was foreknown, pro in Greek. He was in God's foreknowledge, in God's plans, and in God's purposes. This is a sense of preexistence. It is preexistence in God's foreknowledge. But this is not a literal conscious preexistence, but it is preexistence in a sense. And so it's important to remember that we're talking about the subject of preexistence, we have to define what sort of preexistence we are describing. Are we talking about literal conscious preexistence? Or are we talking about preexistence in the foreknowledge, plans, and purposes of God? This passage indicates that Jesus belonged in the latter category. And I mentioned that the believers in the opening two verses are also in God's foreknowledge. They didn't consciously preexist their births. Neither did Jesus, because the same phrase is being used of believers in chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, as is used of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 20. Jesus quite clearly preexisted in God's foreknowledge. Now, the next verse says that God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory. That's chapter 1, verse 21. So not only did God give life to Jesus and bring him out of the dead, but God gave Jesus glory. God shared his glory with Jesus. This is not unlike what we see in Philippians 2. We can see here that Jesus is the recipient of God's own privileges and prerogatives. Jesus now bears the glory of God, not because he himself is God, but because God has shared that prerogative with Jesus. And notice it happened after Jesus was raised from the dead. I've constantly pointed out that the most exalted things that are said about Jesus in the New Testament occur after his resurrection, because that's the point when he has been raised, exalted, and seated at God's right hand. He's in a much higher and elevated position, both in rank, but also in authority, after his resurrection, as opposed to before his resurrection during his earthly ministry. This is one passage that indicates that. God gave Jesus some of God's glory. Now, in chapter 2, we could see that Jesus functions as an example 
for believers to follow. In chapter 2, verse 21, it says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. So here Jesus functions as the example for believers. And we see a lot of evidence that is recorded elsewhere in the Gospels, and it indicates that Jesus functions as the person that believers are to follow. This is why believers are supposed to obey Jesus. Not only is he the object of obedience, but he's also the object of their imitation when it comes to their life. That's very important. The life of Jesus is something that's meant to show how human beings can actually live when they don't have deceit in their mouth, when they don't return reviling, when they don't utter threats, and importantly, when they entrust themselves, when they show faith and trust, and they place this faith into the one who judges righteously. That, of course, is the Father. That, of course, is God, a single person, him who judges righteously. In chapter 3, verse 22, we read that Jesus is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Chapter 3, verse 22. So not only did Jesus get to share in the prerogative of God in that Jesus now bears the glory of God, we can also see that God has placed angels, authorities, and powers under Jesus. So Jesus is exalted after his resurrection to have authority and power over all of these things. The angels and the authorities and the powers had been subjected by God to Jesus. So Jesus is not a mere mortal or a mere human being. He has been elevated to the right hand of God. He shares in God's prerogatives. And God has given to Jesus authority and power even over the angels. No other human being can be described that fits that particular description. Jesus is a highly exalted, highly empowered human figure. And lastly, in chapter 4, verse 1, it says that since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because the one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's chapter 4, verse 1. Now what's going on here is actually very delicate, and we need to read the details very clearly. It indicates that Jesus, whom we already know is the example, because he has suffered in the flesh, believers, the readers, are to arm themselves and they are to cease from sin when they also suffer in the flesh. Now, why am I pointing this out? It indicates that believers can suffer in the flesh, as in they can suffer physically, they can suffer in this mortal body. It means they're not suffering by threats or by harassment. They're suffering in the flesh. They're actually being beaten up in their bodies. But it also indicates that the suffering of Jesus occurred in the same way. 
Jesus also suffered in the flesh in the same way that believers who imitate Jesus also suffer in the flesh. And it shows that the suffering of Jesus with this sort of fleshly language is not describing some sort of implicit dual natures as if Jesus only suffered on his human side, but he didn't suffer on his divine side. No, it's describing Jesus in the same way that believers are described, in a way that has believers functioning as those who imitate and follow Jesus' example. Not describing Jesus as some sort of different dual-natured person that is a category all by itself, distinct from human believers. No, Jesus is just like these human believers because he's a member of the human race. He's a man. He's a human being. Jesus suffered in the flesh, and so believers imitate Jesus by also suffering in the flesh. And that's very important. So that's enough about the Father and the Son. What about the Spirit? This brings us to our fourth point, what First Peter teaches about the Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit doesn't actually get described very often in First Peter, so we're going to have to work with what little evidence that we have. The first piece of evidence, apart from our subject passage in the opening two verses, is actually kind of interesting. It says in chapter 1, verse 10, In regard to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. That's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. Now, we've got a couple of interesting things we have to talk about here. First, we have the Spirit, which this particular translation says that he predicted the sufferings of Christ, but the Spirit is a neuter noun, so it would be a thing. It would be the Spirit that predicted the sufferings of Christ, indicating as it predicted the sufferings of Christ. You can't take this neuter spirit and change it into a masculine he. That's just not how the Greek works. The second thing we have to look at is actually defining what it is that is meant by this phrase, Spirit of Christ. Is this a subjective genitive, meaning it's Christ's own spirit? It's the spirit that belonged to Christ, that spoke in the Old Testament prophets? Or is this the objective genitive, namely the spirit of Christ, the spirit concerning Christ, the spirit that told and influenced the prophets about Christ and his own sufferings and the glories to follow. That actually seems to fit, in my opinion, a little bit better, the context that we have. And it also is a faithful and charitable reading regarding Christ, who did not consciously pre-exist his birth. We already have seen in chapter 1, verse 20, that Christ pre-existed in God's foreknowledge in his plans and purposes. So this couldn't be Jesus' own spirit, Christ's own spirit, that was influencing the Old Testament prophets. And I do think these are Old Testament prophets, not Christian prophets in the church. So I think the objective genitive is what was intended by the author, the spirit concerning the Messiah, the spirit that would speak 
concerning the sufferings and the glories of the Messiah. I think that's actually what is meant by this passage, but I admit it is grammatically ambiguous. So, of course, you have to make up your mind based on all of the evidence available, and I have laid out my case. The next verse, in verse 12, tells a little bit more about the Spirit. It says that it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. That's chapter 1, verse 12. The Holy Spirit here is described as that which has been sent from heaven. Well, I want to know who sent the Holy Spirit. Not the supposed triune God of three persons sending one person. No, it seems to be God sending the Spirit. The Spirit, of course, uh, is functioning in this obedient and subordinate position here. But God sends forth the Spirit to influence the lives of Old Testament prophets, and God sends the Spirit in order to identify the New Covenant believers as members of God's family. I mentioned that the Spirit doesn't show up too often in First Peter, but this is one of those instances. The last relevant passage is in chapter 4, verse 14, which says that if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rest on you. That's chapter 4, verse 14. So here the Spirit is called the Spirit of glory and of God. What does the Spirit do? Well, it rests upon you. Second person plural. It rests upon believers, the readers, the original recipients of 1 Peter, because they are sanctified and set apart because of the Holy Spirit's mediating work. But the Spirit is described as the Spirit of glory and the Spirit of God. I do think that these are just two different descriptions of the same spirit. I don't think this is a reference to two different spirits, as if there is one spirit of glory and another spirit of God. No, the verb to rest is a singular verb, meaning it is one spirit of glory and God that rests on you, not a spirit of glory and also a spirit of God, two different spirits. The verb is singular, indicating that the spirit is defined by God's glory, and it is defined by God, whom we already know is the Father and the God of Jesus. So in conclusion, we've learned that God is the God of Jesus, the sole creator. This God empowers Jesus. This God exalts Jesus, raises Jesus from the dead, and shares his glory with Jesus. God and Jesus are clearly not co-equal. We've also seen that Jesus is the human Messiah who suffered and died for others. His blood was spilt. His blood covers these sanctified believers. Jesus was in the foreknowledge and plans of God, which is a form of pre-existence, but it's not a literal conscious pre-existence. We also see that Jesus serves as a model for good Christian obedient behavior. We also observe that the Spirit is God's own Spirit. It influenced the former prophets in prophetic matters, especially regarding the coming Messiah's sufferings and glories to follow. 
the spirit is the object of sending, suggesting that God is the one who sends the spirit. And the spirit marks out the people of God by resting upon them. So we've seen that First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, despite being a triadic passage describing the Father, Son, and Spirit, is not a reference to the triune God, neither explicitly nor implicitly. Not even close. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we continue to explore these triadic statements in the New Testament by looking closely at the epistle of Jude, where yet again the Father, Son, and Spirit appear all in the same sentence. Please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote the sound and non-negotiable truths about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. The best way to support us is by subscribing on YouTube, by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends, and giving us an honest review on iTunes. If you'd like to offer a donation, you could do it in two ways. You can check out the episode's description for a PayPal link, or you can click the Join button on YouTube and subscribe there in one of two different tiers. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.